it's like a ghost. It's like a spirit that actually sort of flies into you and has its way. And you don't actually feel it until they start thawing you out. And then, boy, do you feel it. Welcome to the Curiosity Shire, where we share stories which will educate, inspire, and challenge you. My name is Seth, and I'll be your host during today's episode. I bring my sense of adventure and endless curiosity into each conversation as I learn more about the incredible world we live in and the inspirational people that we share it with. In this episode, I talk with a mountaineering adventurer who experienced a life-changing event atop Denali. Although he had faced many challenges while climbing in the past, this was a completely different struggle which he would have to endure, lasting long after he left the hospital. During our conversation, Nigel shares the details of that harrowing event and what he learned from it. He shares how experiences on the mountain correlate to choices. He shares how experiences on the mountain correlate to choices we make in our everyday lives and how we can make any situation in life better by shifting our perspective. Well, Nigel, welcome to the Curiosity Shire podcast. Super excited to have you on and share some of your adventures and thrilling expeditions that you've been on. Thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the things that caught my attention when I first heard about you uh, was your expedition to Alaska. So I'd kind of like to start with that story. And what led up to that? What made you interested in this expedition and kind of the process of getting you to that point in Alaska? Well, I spent a very fortunate childhood hill walking in the Peak District of Derbyshire in my native England. And I'd spent many, many years walking, getting out into the hills and thoroughly enjoying it. And I found it a place to find peace, reflect, think about life, get away from society. And it seemed to work for me. And as I got a little older, initially I went with my parents, but as I got a little older, um, I just worked, walked further, um, met up with uh, my friends at the time. We'd go and push ourselves harder and do some scrambling, which then turned into climbing and mountaineering. And I started international expedition work in the very early 1990s. And sort of later on uh, that decade, I went and climbed in Bolivia in the Andes at a thoroughly good time. Came back home and happened to go to a dinner party in Yorkshire. And there, chatting away about Bolivia, uh, one of the guys I went, I went to uh, Alaska with said to me, well, you know, you had a great time, Nigel, and you obviously know what, what it's all about. Do you fancy a crack at Mount McKinley next year, we now call Denali? And I said, you know, the most dangerous, frightening, short world in the English language, which is, yes. And the legend in that day was born. <laughs> How much experience did you have before this point? Uh, quite a lot of travelling, mountaineering and altitude experience. And they're vital, really. Climb, people think you have to be a rock climber. Mountaineering is slightly different to that. Uh, you've got to be competent with ropes and on ice and crampons. And I've done many seasons in Scotland as well, which might not be the highest place in the world, but I assure you are some of the most horrific conditions uh, that you can probably imagine particularly when you're on top of uh, some of the peaks there so I was very well experienced as were the other two guys as well Anthony and Steve they had climbed together though before I, I came as a sort of extra to the team 
Um, but we trained in the Lake District. We got to know each other really, really well before we went out there because, again, uh, we, we still think that's a vital thing to do. Um, so we're all good experienced mountaineers when we left. Amazing. So you, you headed up to Alaska. And what is the process for somebody who doesn't really know what an expedition like this takes? Did you have to do a lot of training beforehand for that specific expedition? Um, how close to Denali could you get? I'm actually from Alaska, so I've been to Denali National Park. So I've been to that area. But for somebody who doesn't know, what is it like getting to that point? Getting on the plane and getting to the mountain, I'm not going to say is the easy bit, but the actual sorting out times, training, equipment, working out how to each other works, sponsorship if that's an avenue you choose to go down, organising with families, you know, the list The list just goes on about actually getting everything ready to go. And, and at this time, and I don't know now, but when we went, you had to pre-apply. Uh, this is before the days of, of easy emails, so we'd be sending faxes to and from uh, Alaska with all the information on you wouldn't let you weren't allowed to just turn up of here we are and I'm going to climb a mountain you had to get permission prove your experience what equipment you were taking you know and this took months um, <clears throat> and then obviously after all that the easy bit is you get on the plane that you booked and you fly all the way to Anchorage even then we had to start organizing transport food fuel materials because obviously we couldn't fly with all that and then we took a minibus up to Talkeetna, which is the uh, flying off point. And again, you have to then go to the ranger station, prove to the rangers who you are with all the paperwork, go through a briefing, get on the little plane you've organised, and then you, step, you put your first step on the ice. Man. And what year was this? This was 1999. Okay. So, not that long ago, but it's getting quite a long time ago now <laughs> it, it's yeah. it feels yeah. like anything before 2000 like in the 90s oh it wasn't that long ago but that's over 22 years ago now it is in fact it's this week um oh wow t tomorrow and the day after will be the anniversary that's that's incredible i feel like mount mckinley you don't have like the sherpas that you have with mount everest it's a lot more like you mentioned um are there guides that come with you or how is how is the support you can organise guides if you choose to, um, and, and many people do. But as you say, this is not an expedition in perhaps, say, the Himalayas, the Andes, parts of Africa, where you sometimes have to take guides because that's the local ruling, but also yeah. you don't have pack animals or Sherpas, porters, droggers, whatever the, the local term is. So you're having to carry all your own kit. And, and I use this as a lesson when I work with a lot of people in the fact of, you know, it depends what responsibility you want to take in your life. Do you want to let everybody else carry the baggage for you or do you want to do it yourself? Do you want to be responsible for taking all those decisions or do you want to put it into somebody else's hands? And I'm not saying either way is right or wrong. Certain things work for certain people. But we chose not to be guided and we've done lots of research into the mountain lots of research into the route and we talked to the rangers of course in Talkeetna but there's nobody out there to carry your gear and you know if your rucksack's too heavy well bad luck you packed it and I, we always have this phrase you know I'm not your mother so if, if you're going to whine at me I'm not your mother 
you bring it, you carry it, you take it. And we'll be quite ruthless with each other's bags organising who's got what because we just cannot afford the weight. I, th I think that extreme ownership is what enables you to succeed more than, you know, just allowing somebody else to make those decisions for you. And I think that helps you long term. And I think that's a great lesson for in life, too. You know, do you expect other people to do do things for you or do you want to take ownership and do it yourself? Well, it's a bit like so many things, the differential between an expedition and a holiday. And some are a mixture, because in the, in the Himalayas you will have porters, that's the way of the world, um, you know, they're lovely, fantastic people, I love them to bits. But you'll still have to carry some of your weight. I'm just not a great believer in people, you know, almost putting your hand on the rock for you, picking your boots up. Do you want to be a mountaineer, or do you want to be a tourist? And I think a lot of modern television and theatre and, theater and cinema blur the line incredibly badly um, I get the impression that there are a lot of people out there, you've only got to look on some of the social media channels who profess to be these wonderful expedition in, in every genre whether it was canoeing, whatever <clears throat> and then when you look behind the camera and you've got 60 people getting you there I've got to ask the question, what are you trying to prove? Mm -hmm. And I go always trying to prove nothing because I just enjoy it yeah, you're just doing it for the fun of it. Uh, I well, think, and, and the educational use as well, because not just Alaska, I have done many expeditions since, and I use that uh, regularly in education in the UK to enlighten the youngsters' eyes Yeah, and bring them experiences from around the world. I think that's one, one of the beauties of kind of the revolution of small portable cameras like GoPros, because then you can have people who don't have the whole TV support crew following them around uh, that can actually document their adventures. So it's kind of, just as a side note, it's kind of incredible how cameras have re revolutionized uh, the, the extreme expedition industry in a way. They have. It's, it's quite interesting because I work at a mountain festival in Kendal in the Lake District in England. And... What we find is, initially, it really was, you know, you needed a guy with a camera sort of the size of an elephant on your shoulder with immense battery packs and, and all the, you know, the 70s and 80s clutter that came with it. And all of a sudden, you know, you get something the size of a matchbox that does the trick. And there's, there's a danger here. What we found very quickly when all these were invented were everybody wanted 10 of them. They wanted to take so much footage it was almost unbearable. And... You know, come and look at my three-hour mountaineering film when everybody wanted about 15 minutes. That has now evolved into a much better genre, and you're correct, you know, we can take GoPros underwater, we can shoot with our iPhone. Yeah. We can gain footage of a good quality and do things with it. Shooting the footage is one thing. Doing something good with it is another. That is very true. So going back to your expedition in Alaska, you guys have made it to Talkeetna and you've taken the small airplane and Mount McKinley is quite, Denali is quite remote. Um, there's not a lot of, not a lot out there at the base of the mountain. Um, so you get out there and what happens next? Well, we fly into base camp. We had a, a, an issue with transport over. Sadly, we couldn't go with all our gear at the same time with logistics with the flight people. So we, we got flown in with some of our gear 
and the rest of the gear sadly came in later in the day. We, we weren't going to camp at base camp, but we had to because we had to wait for this gear, but that's okay. We sort our lives out, and then the next morning we go down what's called Heartbreak Hill. It's Heartbreak Hill on the way back. Uh, we go down there, enter the Cahiltner Glacier, and then we start a, no, a number of days actually walking to the base of the route we're choosing to climb, which is the West Rib. We've got a big rucksack on our back and a sledge full of kit. We go up for a day on the main Cahiltner route, which is what everybody tends to do. But then they go straight on. We broke right into something called the Cahiltner Northeast Fork. Uh, and the rangers had informed us that nobody had been there for about two to two and a half years because of the avalanche risk. And we were going to be the first team in, which felt incredibly daunting and also very exciting. And, and we made it into there. The, the snow was very deep, though. Getting from A to B was just a, a real drag. And you're always a bit worried on expeditions with timings. You set the flight in, and you set the flight home. And you can sit with a pen and pencil all you like for the rest of it, but just be very flexible. And, and you know, when, you, when you're in, the, in Britain and you've not got there yet, you're saying three days to this, two days to that, and you suddenly realise, throw that out the window, you get to the bottom when you get to the bottom. Because we got to a place called the, uh, the Icefall, and this place is legendary in mountaineering literature, and it is when you're on it. You know, it's only about half a mile long, so we'd walk that in, you know, half an hour, and it took three days. And it's just so crevassed, so full of great big holes, you know, and there's no footpath sign, and, and there's nobody saying, come this way, and we're the first people for two to two and a half years. There's not even a set of footprints to find, it's nothing. So we battled through that, <coughs> excuse me, and that was a real monster to get through we had, a, we had one night, we're still bashing away trying to get through it, it was going dark, trying to pitch tents on the sides of a crevasse field, we're digging down a platform, then the bottom of it all opens up into a crevasse, <coughs> you know, it, it was what people now might say was a bit of an epic, um, we, we just thought it was hard work, but we got through it, we based ourselves at the base of the main West Rib route, and then we actually started doing the mountaineering ridge, which as I often say, was the best few mountaineering days of my entire life. I'm curious, before we continue, what made you guys, I, I guess, what gave you guys the confidence to make the decision to go on a route that people hadn't done for two and a half years because of the avalanche uh, risk? What, what preparation or what decision making went into saying, hey, I think we can do it? Well, the thing is, again, do you want to follow everybody else? Do you want to be, I don't know, in the park, uh, on, the, on the hill, kayaking down a river, whatever? Do you want to go where everybody else is? Now, don't get me wrong, that's safer. Uh, the track is probably pre-done. It's probably well written about, whatever it is. But occasionally, you know, sometimes in life you need to just get out of everybody else's lane and just go somewhere else. And... We initially were going to do or have an attempt on the Cassin Ridge, which is much tougher, much tougher. Just didn't work out like that, and the West Rib seemed a better option. But to give you some examples of numbers, there were ourselves, the three British team, and there were four Americans in a team, and that was it. And this is an awfully big mountain. The actual West Buttress normal route, you know, you could see them like ants going up, up, up the hill. It's, you know, it's nothing like what 
the peaks are like now with great long ropes of people. It's not like that. But the majority of people took the same route. And in times of life like this one, we just wanted to be somewhere else, somewhere different, out the way, fighting our own challenge, and and just having, well, we thought, a thoroughly good time. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was physically and mentally absolutely exhausting. But all the best challenges in the world are. That's why they're challenges. That makes sense. And I think I think it's important to, yeah, for some people, you know, choosing the safe route is okay. And for some things, choosing the safe route is okay. Yeah. But there's a lot more fun to be had adventuring on your own and, and finding your own path. Um, so you got over, you got over to the other side, which is mind blowing three days for this half mile stretch of ice mm. and camping on the crevasses and trying to, trying to go through this, but you got through that. And then what were the next couple best days of your mountaineering adventures? Well, the thing was that you, you sort of go up the rib and then it sort of it doesn't level off but it undulates and it's really exposed. You need fantastic mm -hmm. weather and, and we've got a lot of it actually. Um, but there's no, you know, there's, everything's a new world, everything's a new horizon. And I talk to a lot of people about going over the horizon. What's next? You don't know. The only way you'll find out is by sticking your head over the parapet and having a look. And we followed the best route that we could find. We got our camps up there, but also we have to do load hauling. And we spoke earlier, um, you know, about some mountains where you might have to take Sherpas and all the rest of it. Yeah. There's nothing up there. So what you do is load haul. And what I mean is this. You take half the kit you don't need for now. You climb as hard as you can for the day. You bury it. You stick a little flag in. And then you abseil back down to your camp and you go to bed. The next day, you pack your camp up, you go back up to where that kit is, you dig a platform and you put your tent down and you go to bed. Now, that means you climb everything twice. Now, that sounds hard work, and it is, but it's also incredibly good for acclimatisation. Mm. But we haven't got Sherpas carrying gear. We haven't got people... You know, I've been on Himalayan expeditions and you get up in the morning and there's a bowl of warm water at the foot of your tent and a cup of tea by six o'clock. Um, you don't have to pack a tent down. That's what the, the Sherpas do. By sort of middle of the day, they've already built a table and have a meal on it for you. You, you sit and eat that. You then walk off to the end of the day. They've beaten you again and build a camp. <laughs> now, I mean, that's lovely. Don't get me wrong. But you can't do that um on a mountain like this so grabbing a bite to eat is is not a rush but you try and get it down you you might be in a precarious position you can't just open your flask for a drink you know you, you've got to balance your day but you've got to get your own kit up that mountain mm. and we're mm. carrying gallon cans of what they call uh, white gas so petroleum spirit basically you know, I've got two gallon or three gallon cans in a rucksack slopping about. We've got food and all the rest of it. We've got to get that up there, find our own campsites, because the, you know, there's nowhere, oh, everybody's camped here, you can see where they've been. Yeah. And, and it's an immense physical and mental effort, but it's wonderful as well, because the views you get, the sensations you get, and just to give you one example, the Americans were a few hours behind us, uh, and we're really lovely folk. And we sort of crossed paths every so often, had a chat. <coughs> and one night we dug ourselves in. Um, I, I spent my formative 
business years when I was a youngster digging holes in pavements and sidewalks so I understood about digging so digging a tent in the ground is easy I'm bashing away with a dustpan get the tents down we're all in bed and we hear the Americans still coming up and they're having a really nasty time in the dark so we literally jump out of bed get our clothes on one Anthony stayed and got some bruise on Steve and myself went down to get to them guide them in help them dig their tents in and feed them tea and then we all went back to bed because that's what you do with your friends on the mountain and it's those experiences that you know this is 22 years ago say this is what sticks with me and mm -hmm. these friendships stick with me and by doing that we all help each other achieve the goal that we're all after it's basically like together you can achieve more than just you by yourself you know, you helping them creates those bonds, those memories. And then for them, it actually helps them accomplish the climb that they're doing and clearly are having trouble with. So that camaraderie is, is so important. That's part of the human experience, you know, helping each other. It is. And neither of us summited in the end, actually. And that, that's a whole other story. Uh, but when we, myself, Anthony and Steve were airlifted off, the, the, the Americans actually, the guys found us and they came down to hospital and said hello, put themselves out the way to come and visit. It was really kind of them to come and see us. Um, and, and They chose not yeah. to summit for other reasons and they came down, but um, it was a real tight bond, a real tight bond on the mountain. And it allowed everybody to work to their best because we, we don't have a full skill set in our lives. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm an okay mountaineer and I do a bit of cycling, and but don't ask me to you know, paint the Sistine Chapel or um, build a house. It's not my skill set. So we share each other's skill set. I'm a great believer in that we can't do everything in life. I work with a lot of people in business who say, you know, this great strap line, do this and you can achieve anything. And I'm not going to be impolite. It's absolute rubbish. We can achieve things. But I don't think all of us can achieve anything. But what we can do is achieve what we're good at. Or we can learn. And you soon learn on an expedition. Certain people are great at building camp. Certain people are better cooks than others. That's always important. Nobody wants to dig the toilet, but somebody's got to do it. And, and you move the jobs around. Everybody learns a bit more. We all learn together. <clears throat> so we come actually out of ex every trip even injured or not as a much more rounded individual i like that that's powerful you know one person can't do everything but then when you work as a group everybody's strengths equally uh balance each other out and so then as a group you can do everything and that's yeah. the beauty of working with other people and i and i think that's why one of the most valuable and critical skills in business and life in general is the ability to work with people either lead or organize people find those talents um i was talking to a gentleman rob kasky and we were talking about um shackleton's expedition and how mm -hmm. just an incredible person shackleton was in bringing that group together and giving them so much courage in the face of a, a really trying experience so yeah, yeah i love yeah. that i love that yeah. and You've kind of uh, jumped ahead with the airlifting part. So what happened? You're up there on the on the mountain, and what happened next? <clears throat> we established the highest camp that we could get, 
and there are other camps, you know, you read all this beforehand. One is called the Suckers Camp, because you've got to be an absolute sucker to camp there. And and the reason is it's so exposed. We actually came past it on our way to the top, and there's just this decimation of old tents. It, it's horrible. So we got as high as we could. Uh, we took a day there, got some more kit up, got ourselves sorted, went for the summit the next morning. And the weather was okay. You know, it wasn't a blue sky day. Um, but uh, we'd been on the, we're all given handheld radio, CB radios to talk to base camp. We'd had a word with them the night before and they seemed to be okay with the weather. You know, it's not going to be fantastic, but that's just the way it is sometimes. And we went for it and we had a bit of a delay in the morning, but an argument with one of the stoves, these things happen, but we got cracking. And we seemed to be making reasonable progress. We got up what's called the Orient Express, which is sort of the, the steepest ice on the route of the summit day uh, and we cut through it reasonable pace it was okay got to the summit plateau now mckinley denali isn't like the matterhorn where the summit's the size of a desktop this is quite large i mean hence it's called the football field because it really is bigger than a football field wow and it was there the weather changed and it came in with incredible violence and talking to the rangers afterwards, obviously we were studying it without weather equipment. They tell us it was about a 60 mile an hour crosswind and minus 60 centigrade wind chill. Oof. And Steve started to get sadly quite hypothermic. I was starting to get uh, freezing to the left hand side of my face. And you, you automatically go into survival mode because the, we had a couple of issues here. One of the guys is going down hypothermic. We're a high crosswind, so you can't exactly abseil your way down the mountain because you just can't. But you've got nowhere to hide. And this is where you start taking decisions. You take them based on very little information. You have to take them in a very short time, and you have to stand by them. And the decision we took was, we can't go down, we can't go up, where do we go? And we found in the summit cone uh, a crack in the ice, like a crevasse, but not. most crevasses fall straight down. This was at an angle. Mm. And we bashed the entrance open with our ice axes and looked in. And a few feet down, there was almost a shelf. And we all slid in it, put our rucksacks over the entrance, and there at least we could take idea of what was going on. And when I say that, when you're in a 60 mile an hour wind, a group of three of you, you're screaming at each other to be heard. You can't take conscious to see easy decisions because this thing's trying to... It's a bit like somebody firing frozen peas into your face with a machine gun. And <coughs> by being in the, the crevasse, it wasn't really warm, but we could talk. And we dare get things out of our rucksacks. And we could see what, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to play this? You can't take those kinds of decisions in a blizzard easily. So we got inside the crevasse. And as I say, we closed the entrance the best up we could with uh, rucksacks. And there we spent the night. Now, we didn't know this at the time. We were, you know, trying to work out what's going on. Can we keep Steve warm? What equipment we got? What food we got? Um, is it, are we going to be, there's so much going on and people have said to me on a number of occasions, did you ever think you were going to die? And we didn't. 
And I don't think that's because we're any kind of hero. I think it's purely because our brains were so overloaded with what we're going to do next, how we're going to do this, how we're going to do that. We didn't even think about anything else. There was no time for it. Hmm. And we spent... Again, I can't give you an exact timing because, you know, you don't look at your watch when you've got things like this happening. So we were there all night. Real quick, as an interjection, um, what does it feel like? Because I've actually experienced cold, well, this this kind of cold without the wind. Not experienced that kind of wind with that kind of cold. That's that's insane. Um, but for people who don't know uh, centigrade, minus 60 centigrade is probably around minus 50, minus 55 Fahrenheit. Somewhere around that. No, or is it minus 80? Actually, I'm not sure. I know I know centigrade and Fahrenheit meet at minus 40. It's minus 76 Fahrenheit, I've just checked. Okay, so minus 76 Fahrenheit. The coldest I experienced was actually in Alaska, in Delta. It was, well, Toke. Um, it was minus 80 Fahrenheit. So I've experienced that cold, but I haven't experienced it with that wind, which is insane. Could you... As- could you describe what it's like to experience that kind of cold? Um, it's not just like you're sitting outside and the wind comes up and you're like, oh, I'm a bit chilly. I need to, you know, go put on a coat. What is this kind of cold like? Well, there in itself is a question because it overtakes you very quickly and it freezes your nerve endings off very quickly. So you don't actually feel pain. You almost don't even feel it creeping into you, the frostbite and the cold and the damage, because, again, it's so fast, but also it's frozen your nerve endings off. What I can say is you feel very vulnerable. I was nearly blind in the left eye because ice crystals were under my cheek and my eyelid, so I looked like I'd been in a boxing match. We had no comprehension of, actually, the danger of the cold, because, again, you didn't feel it. And it's like a ghost. It's like a spirit that actually sort of flies into you and has its way. And you don't actually feel it until they start thawing you out. And then, boy, do you feel it. And that was down in the hospital the next day. And that was probably the most excruciatingly painful experience of my entire life. How long were you guys up in the crevice? Again, we're not sure. I know we went in sort of late evening. Mm-hmm. I stuck my head out when the sun was coming up. And bear in mind, this is late May, so that could be four or five in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And the weather wasn't still great. And then we just thought to ourselves, look, we've got this radio. We need to get a message out to the ranger base just to tell them we're stuck and, you know, whatever. <clears throat> and that was very difficult because... I've got a little handheld eight-cell radio, you know, all of about 12 volts. Bass is fine. They've got a lovely, warm, big radio set and 12-foot aerials and all the rest of it. And I'm trying to broadcast with this thing that is just not going to do it. But the Ranger base are used to people calling in in difficult conditions, and they could hear me pressing the PTT switch. So they could hear somebody was trying to get a message through. And all they say is, if this is really somebody trying to give me a message, give me two clicks. Click, click. Works. But we couldn't actually talk. But we we got out the crevasse the next morning after talking with the rangers or getting a message from the rangers the best we could. Because we took some simple decisions again. 
they were very concerned about us, thankfully, but they said, we can't get any teams up to you because nobody's acclimatised. And then we thought, well, they're going to put a fixed-wing aircraft up in the morning to spot for us, but if we're under the ice, they'll never see us. So we have to get out. And by the morning, the weather had improved. I'm not going to say it was delightful, but it was better. And we got out on top of the ice. We were apparently spotted. But as I got out of the crevasse, I'd got the radio. I put the radio on the edge of the crevasse entrance, as it were, scooted out, and accidentally hit it with my elbow and knocked it down onto the ice a couple of 300 feet further down. And I thought, well, Naja, you absolute idiot. Right, you knocked it down, you go and get it. And so I did. And it was then I suddenly realised I wasn't walking properly and I kept falling over. That should have told me straight away I got frostbite in my feet. And when I picked the radio up, it was perfectly untouched, but it never worked again. So not only had I dropped the radio, I'd broken it and lost our only connection with the outside world. And, un and unbeknown to me, realised that my feet wouldn't work. So I got back up to the lads and felt incredibly guilty because of this radio. And we just said, look, we've just got to get down. Um, we've got to get back to the tents, sort our life out. We can't expect people to come up to us. We've got to be visible. <coughs> and and that we started this sort of tortuous journey to get back. And it became very apparent I wasn't walking very well. So when you're climbing on a rope, uh, if you're on a glassy, you'll be anything from 10 to 20 metres, so 30 to 60 feet apart. And we took that down to 5 metres, 15 feet, to control me, because I wasn't walking properly. Steve, who had been so cold the night before, made a magnificent recovery. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in the mountains, and I don't think I ever will. That's an absolute one-off. How we did it, I'll never know. Anthony wasn't too bad. It's still a bit frostbitten, but, you know, OK. And me in the middle, and they tried to control me to get us down. But after hours of fighting, that wasn't going to happen, and... And that's where we separated the group. And Steve went off on his own, an incredibly brave thing to do, to try and find help. And a few hours later, thankfully, help did come. And Anthony and I were airlifted off by helicopter and taken down to base camp and then flown to Anchorage. The tragedy were of you... it is... Sorry. Were you in any pain during this time when you were walking funny? Just frustration. Just frustration that I couldn't walk properly and I felt a real hindrance to my friends and I was letting them down. And, you know, things weren't working. My hands were like claws, my feet were terrible, but I couldn't feel a lot. But just this awful frustration that I, I thought I was going to be the end of us all and it was all going to be my fault. Mm. And then we got to, I say, where Steve went off on his own and Anthony and myself were airlifted off. Uh, and the tragedy was that Steve going for help because we made this awful assumption that well a helicopter's come so Steve must have found help and the tragedy was he hadn't he'd actually taken an immense fall broken both his legs spent another night freezing on his own on the mountain the helicopter was coming anyway but none of us knew man were they able to get Steve afterward Yes, they picked him up the next day, and okay, that's good. You know, we, we when we hit the hospital, we thought, well, Steve won't be here because he's still on the mountain, saying, you know, yeah. my mates have left me, and I've got to pack all the tents up and come back on my own. And it was quite the opposite. He was flown in the next day, incredibly badly injured, mm. and both Steve and I were bedridden for a long, long time. So I, though I knew he'd hit the hospital, I don't think I saw him for about a week because we were both told to stay in bed. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what was it like after that experience as you came to terms with the fact that you had pretty severe frostbite? Initially numbing, and I don't mean in the physical way, um, an absolute shock and denial. As I said earlier, thawing out from frostbite is absolutely unbelievably painful, and, and, and I would never want to go through that again. But there's no answers when you ask the medical staff, and I've been an electrical engineer for a lot of my life, and we all work with you know lights on, lights off, and, and we expect answers to simple questions in physics and science. There's nothing like that with frostbite. You know, am I going to keep my toes? We don't know, Mr Vardy. Well, am I going to use my fingers? We don't know, Mr Vardy. Because they don't. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, though, there was a fabulous doctor who was the spitting image of Father Christmas who came out of retirement to see us. And he looked at me one evening and he said, Mr Vardy, you will definitely be in the mountains again. And I don't think at the time I understood the magnitude of that statement. But a few years later I did, because he was absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And also they don't dress your wounds, so you actually watch your body die. Which is gruesome, but you do get used to it, because you've got no other choice. And I felt utterly in denial until they probably started cutting my you know cutting the frostbite off there's no other way of doing it. it it was dead it was black it was hard they call it necrotic tissue or mummification it actually really looks like an egyptian mummy and the only way out is surgery and that's what, exactly what they did but and i think this goes back to the mindset of you know the best person to help you through life is yourself you were able to get to the point where you went back on the mountains Absolutely, and, and that was my every thought of every day was, I will walk again, I will climb again, ride my bicycle, get out into the hills, whatever. And I, I was lucky, don't get me wrong, when they took my toes off uh, and some fingers on one hand, I was probably at my lowest, I was in an appalling place. And I would have been very happy to end it, quite frankly, and... Uh, it wasn't the fact that I didn't want to, there was no opportunity. I couldn't get out of bed because neither of my legs worked, they were full of anaesthetic and my toes had been removed. But if I could have walked, scraped, got myself to a window, I'd have thrown myself out, quite simply. Mm. A few days later, I gave myself the biggest kick up the backside I've ever done. And looked at myself and said, Nigel, there's only one person going to work this. There's only one person going to live it and succeed with it, and that's you. So stop moaning, stop complaining, get off your fat backside and do something about it. And that's what I did. Now, that probably sounds very simple to say now, but I had my toes and heels taken off on the Friday. I was walking by the Wednesday. Wow. And I'm not going to say it wasn't painful, but once I was upright, the nurses had a problem telling me to sit down again. You know, 50 yards the first day, 100 yards the second day, climbing stairs the third. And not at speed, don't get me wrong, this really hurt. But I was just, right, I'm upright, that's it, you ain't stopping me now, and they never have. 
No, they haven't. And I was reading on your website, you you made a a British record, right, with the Seven Summits. Do I understand that correctly? Well, the Seven Peaks, Seven Islands, yes. Uh, don't get this confused with the Seven Peaks on Seven Continents, which is what a lot of people do. Yeah, uh, I did yes. get it confused. So yes. what does it no, mean? No, it's all right. Well, on my return to the mountains, I went to Scotland initially because I thought I need to start at the bottom again. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Scotland's at the bottom, but it's local. So I went to Scotland and started to learn a bit more. Then I went to the Alps and did some more learning. Then I went to the Himalayas, and and this was a progressive, how do I work with this body of mine? Because I, I really don't know. And he added ups and downs, and, and things were <laughs> tootling along. And then I had another one of those horrible yes moments where somebody said to me, do you want to go to Baffin Island? And so I went to Baffin Island, and we did an expedition ski touring on Baffin. And I met a Guatemalan chap called Jaime Vinals, who was doing the seven peaks of this world's seven largest islands. And mm -hmm. I thought, do you know, I can actually do this. This is something I could achieve as, as the injured person I was. And I came back to the UK, asked lots of questions, and has anybody done this, anybody have any information? And I was either met with, no, why do we care, who are you, why is anybody bothered? And then I looked back at myself and thought, okay, who am I doing this for? Because if I'm doing it for other people, they don't care. But do we live our lives trying to prove to other people who we are? Or do we just get on living our lives? And so I did it based on my own experiences and my own joys and my own fears and my own injuries. And I invested all my own money into it, all my own time into it, and I climbed the tallest peaks on the world's seven largest islands and came home in 2007 after doing that. And again, you know, I talked to the mountaineering press, nobody cared, nobody was bothered. But that's okay. Because, again, I'm not doing this to fill a broadsheet newspaper or a magazine. I'm doing it for me. And I experienced wonderful things, everything from Greenland to Japan to Borneo to Sumatra. Madagascar, Baffin Island, you know, you've got an immense range of places, environments, peoples, um, and I thoroughly loved doing it. The problem I had was when I got back and I'd not got a challenge, it was what do I do next? That's always the question after one of those experiences. Um, and I feel like you haven't stopped, though. You are still going on all sorts of adventures. And I'm going to put your contact information in the show notes for the listener. They can uh, check it out and kind of keep up with your adventures. I just want to end this, this conversation with a question. Not everybody's going to be climbing mountains. Not everybody's going to be on Mount McKinley, uh, Denali, facing you know frostbite, severe weather. Um and I should say, not everybody's going to be in the hospital a couple days later at their lowest point. But what would you say to somebody who is facing that low point, uh, no matter what it is, whether it's you know they're uh, something they're going through personally, or they just feel um, like they can't keep going, or they're inadequate? What would you say to them as to how to push through that that barrier? Believe in yourself accept help as well because 
through COVID and many other things, is lots of people been going on about mental health and um, you know our life's change and all the rest of it, and it has. But going on about an issue will never solve it. And if you are having a really tough time, what you've got to remember is there's only one person going to get through this, and that's you. It's how you choose to get through it. You might say, I need some help to start with because I'm really struggling with this. But you must never become reliant on it. You must learn and accept that help at the time. But I was always brought up with the motto that God helps those that help themselves. And I accepted a lot of help through my injuries. I still do now occasionally because having lost all my fingertips, I still need a hand with certain things because I can't open packets or other things like that. But get over yourself. So get over the fact of I'm too embarrassed to ask because you need to. Get over the fact of I'm not worth it because you are. Get over the fact that nobody loves me because they do. But you've got to love yourself as well. Don't lock yourself away when you're in a difficult time. Don't hide away from society when you're in a difficult time. There's people out there who wish to help you. You've just got to let them in. And you will learn an absolutely unbelievable amount about your life and the people around you if you go through difficult times. And to be honest, we all need to go through them, I think. And yes, not horrific mountain crazy adventures. But we're all going to have a health crisis or something in our lives or Lord forbid a car accident, whatever it happens to be. Use them as learning experiences. You will be amazed how much you can get out of it, even when it is probably the worst thing you'll ever experience. Thank you for visiting the Curiosity Shire and listening to today's conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend so they can be a part of this community as well. This episode was edited by Jeff Parker, with music by John Bentley and Grand Mercy. And I'm your host, Seth Sutherland, wishing you all the best until we see you again here in the Curiosity Shire.